Hello everyone, and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my girlfriend, Ben. How's it going? Hello. Good, thank you, mate. All right? Yeah, living the dream here. <laughs> living the dream. A nightmare to others. <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. Well, it's not just us two this week. What we've done is gone and got a couple of special guests to come on. One of them may be familiar to regular listeners. Our good friend, Dr. Mitch. How's it going, Mitch? All right, yeah. Nice to be here again. So it's the hat trick. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. You've been on more offer than I have. Top goal scorer. <laughs> Long may it continue. The golden dice. <laughs> With us all the way <laughs> from Manchester, or, or thereabouts, those environs. Uh, it's Newt. How's it going, Newt? Going well. A lovely sunny day up here in the grim north. Excellent. Well, you've not been on the podcast before. And you have a games company, so would you like to tell our listeners who may be unaware of what it is that you do, just so they know what's going on? Yeah, I, I have a little small press publishing company called D101 Games. There is there is an origin story towards the name, but that's... And I've been going, ooh, I think in 15 years this 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 September, I think, is our birthday. So we're in our 15th year. It's mainly stuff by me. I started doing um, a game called Open Quest. Also, um, another one that I do is Monkey the Roleplay Game, based upon Monkey Magic, the TV series, and the Chinese novel Journey to the West. But mainly the TV series, though, I would suggest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Mitch has helped me out. In fact, I first got to know him, and he first helped me out on doing the editorial for Monkey. And we've trundled along since then. He's been a big fan of Open Quest. Uh, he gets a credit on the third edition. Yeah, and we're here tonight to talk about our latest collaboration, which is... Beyond Dread Portals. That sounds uh, very ominous. I thought I thought you were the nice one out of this pair, Mitch. That sounds very uh, dark and stormy. So uh, where, where do we start? Do we start talking about Dread Portals, or do we discuss what Open Quest is? Oh, okay, yeah, I quite happily ramble on about Open Quest. Open Quest, basically, uh, when Mongoose did a systems resource document for their version of RuneQuest many years ago in my lunch hour. I thought, this is great. I can I can write the version of RuneQuest I always wanted or Deep Percent or Fantasy. A very simple version that's still got all the features. Pushed it out via the print-on-demand revolution that is lulu.com at the time. Mm-hmm. This is in the early two, 2000s, if I remember rightly. It's like a history lesson for some of our younger listeners. Yeah, it's this. No, no, I feel I'm feeling my age now. <laughs> and uh, and Paul got hold of a copy. Uh, I don't know. Did, did you met me at this stage via Fire Furnace? I think or? I met you at the first or second Furnace. So way back to the Furnace convention when that was first starting was when I first got to know you. We were chatting and chatting online. And I thought, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. So is this essentially just to, to um, kind of narrow it down for the listeners? Are we saying that it's kind of a D100 sort of BRP system, but stripped back and, and down to like the, the cool bits that just make it work without yeah. overdoing it largely? Absolutely. I, w- I was a bit big fan of um, Savage Worlds, which I've only managed to get to the table a couple of times. But I like that. And another, it has got other influences. Um, and yeah, stri- stripping it down, getting rid of the nonsense and maximising the fun of the game. Isn't it? it still is the name of the game. With, uh, and uh, Paul's helped me out with our open question and cheerleading me many, many times. Um, 
and he's released. We've released stuff for Open Quest. Uh, Crucible Dragons was one of Paul's. Um, he's currently writing a historical Open Quest game called The Year of the Four Emperors. That's right. Yes, it's an uh, ancient Rome, and so over the years, where it lays into Dread Portals is um, because I quite I publish publish other people's work as well. When Paul was inspired to do his own sort of D and D thing, uh, or post D and D thing as we're calling it, he um, t- he sent me a pitch for it. Or did you just send me the full version? I can't remember. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> probably as a did you publish this? No, I probably did send you a pitch. You've mentioned a couple of things like post D and D. Like, yeah, I think we need to dig into that a little bit, and then uh, yeah, Mitch, like, wh- why use Open Quest? I guess is like uh, not just for you personally, but maybe as an advert to the aspiring writers. Okay, so in general for Open Quest, I mean, it was an easy system to write stuff for, whether it's sort of settings and adventures. It just flowed quite obviously for me, and it had a bit less clunk than the other sort of D one hundred type games. So I just fell in with that and I was pursuing other sort of writing endeavours at that time. And I think there was a certain stage where, yeah, Newt was my mentor. Did you know that, Newt? You were my mentor. So I was sending you uh, things for promoted. <laughs> sort of bits of advice. So it's sort of quite happy to fall into that sort of relationship really there with that. And there's bits and pieces that have gone via Newt over the time. Sort of various smaller games as well as things I've been you know, publishing myself that came later. So, for example, when I was quite into Fate and doing things with that, there was Hunters of Alexandria, and that came out via Newt. And Newt also released his sort of Swords and Sorcery, I suppose OSR game, Crips and Things. Crips and Things was quite interesting in the way, well, of course, it was taking away some things from the hole and adding things to the hole. And that was a thing that thought, yes, I can start playing around in that sort of OSR space a bit as well. Somehow Newt gave me permission. And of course, there's an awful lot out there in that space. And later on, I sort of got interested in some of the things that were went deeper in sort of hacking the, uh, the sort of that sort of basis. Mm-hmm. There are things that go quite deep into that. There's things like, you know, I don't know, Mouse Ritter, for example, and Into the Odd, and Owl Hoot Trail. Right. Which go further, move it further away from sort of dungeoneering. Okay, Into the Odd is, of course, refined dungeoneering, but it moves it further away from that, has its own sort of ethos. And although there's rules that are recognisable there in the background, yeah, very recognisable sometimes, it still is very much doing its own thing. And I think that's where the post-D&D and post-OSR things comes in. So with what I'm thinking with Beyond Red Portals, this is my take on writing a game under those sort of design principles. But what I'm doing is moving it further, like these other games, a bit away from D&D and away from Dungeoneering. So it's an exploration game. It's an exploration of, I suppose, spaces, different places on a variety of different planes, you know, locations in that sense, rather than specifically, you know, rather than exploring dungeons. And then, of course, there's a certain political angle 
in terms of things going on. Yeah, so getting in that sort of intrigue type of thing. Paul very much, the pitch was very much, it's very much, the, his starting point was Planescape. So I, when I, I was expecting sort of this weird and wacky sort of planar exploration game with strange monsters that look like cubes. And what I got instead was a ring, a central ring world called the City of Wise, which is this big decaying Renaissance city that's the centre of the empire. And they've discovered these dread portals. And they also make them. They're a whole wizard class who create doors between worlds. And there's five worlds that they've explored that we detail in the book. It's implied that you, there's more, but uh, they're not official. <laughs> and they're not on the books and you're not really meant to go there. And the politics come in. To, in so, so that's the exploration, going through the doors, going on various missions for various patrons, nobles, and um, exploring these places. Um, they have their own setup and lands and the rest of it. Quite quite simple. We're not talking really deep and involved, but, but flavoursome and, and full of game juice. And then you come back and you've got the patrons who might try and not pay you or you might get ambushed by a rival faction that wants the magic item that you've just got, got from another world. Uh, so that was this sort of... it's, And again, the post-D&D sort of thing, I always say it's where you finish playing back in the 80s. We, we played lots of D&D. We played lots of dungeoneering stuff. We even tried our hand at playing a mega dungeon. And then we went on to the games or settings. You remember in the, the later years of first, first edition, it was all those settings, Ravenloft, um, plays great for itself, which was mentioned. Um, Dark Sun, which is a favorite favorite one of mine, um, that you kind of felt these are really good, but they'd be better if the game system was a bit more, I don't know, with the setting, flying with the setting a bit simpler, and it wasn't. <laughs> I had to, I think, so probably by that a good ten year old clunky system that <laughs> um, you know it could do with a bit of. Uh, sprucing up am i, am I getting, getting this right paul yeah that's about right yeah so of course that's the other side of it which is the system as well as playing with that sort of you know lean D D ish chassis it's also adapted to suit the setting so there's you know i mean experience for example is somehow based on exploration and the missions and character abilities again all come from the setting there's character abilities that are involving you know ties with these political groups or for that matter you know things that are focused on social stuff and intrigue rather than i suppose just fighting and magic gotcha so is there um is there much in the game to set all that up for the characters then is there like a a way of embedding people in the setting straight away? Is that going to be done through adventures or is it, is it implied through the abilities that the characters might have? I'm just thinking you've kind of given us a high-level pitch of what might be going on. <laughs> so how, how do you thrust with a simple system uh, new players and new characters into that kind of situation and make them feel like they're part of what's going on? If that's not too esoteric a question for you. No, it's a perfectly reasonable question. So certainly, for example, you'd create your patron together. Right, and that would be the initial into the setting. Would be the patron 
you know, giving you missions. There could be scope for you expanding out beyond that. There's scope for, I mean, I think my vision is that the characters will, if you're continuing play, they'll inevitably end up changing the setting. Because, spoilers, you know, this is a pretty rotten place at the heart of it. And they're not going to like some stuff going on. They're going to get involved and start changing it. But, of course, you can take up, you don't have to bite up this whole, bait bite off this whole thing at a time. Really, what will matter is the factions you're tied to and your patron. And that's a sort of central core you create, you come up with together and you explore from that basis. You're all the, the characters, all, the, the background is all there's guilds. So the most sort of kind of quickest sort of way of all the politics shenanigans, which you know, it's, can be some people ambiguous and something they don't want to deal with. You know, it's like religion. So I don't want to bother with religion, but everybody's a member of the Explorers Guild. So you go to the Explorers Guild. Hello, I'm a member. I've got a big shiny badge. Give us a mission. OK, off you go through that door. Uh, Mr. Ben Star. If you remember that from the seventies, but I think for me the 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 big in is is the character classes. There's three character classes. There's warrior, a magician, and expert. And through those, you pick your class. So expert is probably the every jack of all trades. Every man. It's what the OSR, but the very earlier versions of D and D, is is a catch-all for sort of uh, things like thieves. Bandits, but they could also be ambassadors. You pick backgrounds as well, a bit like modern D and D. You have backgrounds, so they we give you exact example backgrounds. So I had a character who was an expert because I, I wanted more skill based, skill based uh, rather than just pure fighting or pure magic. Um, within that, I could pick. So I picked backgrounds that this guy was. He was a member of the the one of the five families. So that's my first into the setting. I don't, at this point, I don't know anything about the setting. I'm doing this at work. <laughs> right, because Paul's playing the play test game with us later on. Um, I pick, I, I picked these, he's, he's a spy as well. And then you also have as well, a, a slight narrative mechanic called the drive. And the drive is what pushes the character. And you can use the, the drive in, either combat or social situations as a part of a skill test, as long as you you have some way, if you it gives you a big massive bonus, yes, plus four to the dice roll, but if you fail that dice roll, you, you're you in a bad place. And my guy was a, a, he was a flash art, and his big thing was jumping into the heat of it, whether it's an, an argument or, or, or a sword fight. And if he, obviously if he fails that his role there, He's getting piled on by all the people that he's he's attacking, so it builds. It's kind of the the setting is gently but quite firmly in the the setup for the classes and the rest, as well as the sort of this general system of patronage and, and the setting. Is that making sense? There jumped in from a very different angle. Hmm. It does make sense. It does. It's um. It's interesting that your your game appears to be based on exploration. You both mentioned that word a few times now. Uh, that's one of the core pillars of modern D&D, by all accounts. At least that's what it says in the book. But I think most people would say that's one of the least supported elements from modern D&D. So wh what do you do to bring exploration into the heart of the game? Is that the core activity in game tech speak? 
I think it is the core activity because the core mission, as it were, for the game is you've got an activity being given to you by a patron to go to some wild and exotic place you've never been to before, do a thing and come back. And again, you're pushed to go to this place by the mission structure. I think there's also a case that going to a new place that your character's never been before generates experience points as well. So it's pushing you there. There's also hints of rules for things like overland travel as well. So I'm not saying hints of rules. There are rules for overland travel. <laughs> I'd like to buy a hint book, please. Yeah. Are, there, are there hints and something you to prove them and then they're actual rules? Is that how this works? Yeah. No, I just hint at the rules. <laughs> you don't want to be too averse. A very British game designer. I like yeah. it. So I, I guess that... The bit we're sort of missing then, because you, you've mentioned this city and the, it's rotten to the core and there's, there's patrons and you sent some missions, but like, where are you sent to? You've, you've sort of suggested that they're, they're wild and wonderful places, but when you go through these portals, is is that all detailed in the book? Is that something you come up with a gem? Or? Yeah, that's detailed in the book. So as Newt said, there's these five different worlds, which we haven't at all mentioned. And I think this might be something that gets uh, our listeners excited if we perhaps pick one or two of those. One of the worlds is Tethys, which is basically a world of oceans and islands. So I think of it as also the core activity there. What's going on? It's sort of piratical stuff. You know, it's pirate adventures. It's the pirate adventure world. Yes, there's undersea monsters that come along and things like that. It's great. It's pirate adventures and interesting things going on on isolated islands. Whether it's a cyclops or a dragon or something, it's, it's great. That's the sort of thing that's going on. Then there is Nespo, which is, yes, this we talked about Dark Sun earlier, maybe you can see the inspiration, but it's, Nespo is a dead world, both in the sense there was an ancient war, everything is desert. There's nothing really growing there, and coming on, you'll find ruins, you'll find undead. It's a nasty place. And you're not meant to go there. Yeah, don't. It's it's a bad idea to go there. But of course, the adventurers yeah. will. Yeah, well, they've got, the, and also the patrons will want to send people there because this is where the we mentioned. Have you mentioned the Atarch, the undead ruler? Of no, the we US? did not do the Atarch. No. So the Atarch originally. <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. And just to give more flavour, another world is Erebus, one that was also abandoned by us for being too dangerous. Erebus is a world of endless caverns. There's hags there who prophesy. There's giant earthworms. It's a nasty place. Say giant earthworms, giant, you know, massive serpent things rather than the, you know, little wiggly worms. Imagine more dune than uh, you got. Yeah, garden. more dune than, yeah, uh, whatever the other thing would be. <laughs> Rather than me wiggling my finger in front of the podcast, which is very convenient. Visuals are great for listeners, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favourite world is um, is Samara, which is a is a, is a world of warring kingdoms. I think uh, there's a, from memory there's a northern confederation of kingdoms and the southern co- confederation, and one sort of like is a the, I think the northern co- from from memory the northern confederation is sort of like small independent kingdoms, and they sort of co- kind of 
bundled together to stop the uh, the, the sovereign yeah the sovereign um, group of um, lands, which is an empire. Is it the Lion Empire? Yes, uh, yes. Memory, um, taking over, and there's lots of all sorts of exotic hints there that uh, that it, the, the GM could expand, and yeah, that's probably my favourite. Yeah, there's fun bits around the edge, like ogre demons and uh, goblins, which are actually beings of fungus and things like that. Yeah, so that's something Paul's done with the um, the creatures section and the, the monsters. That yeah, they are sort of up. It's that stage where the monsters are, they have a passing resemblance to standard D and D, and then they have twists and they take them away a little little bit from just being another D and D monster. Um, very much like um, RuneQuest did in RuneQuest Two, that you know we had elves and dwarves, and yeah, they were a little bit. Just, changed at that stage but we don't have the <laughs> full factor glamphan sort of treatment they have today where it's like well um you'd have to explain a bit more to players what's going on so i think paul's very although there's all these weird strange alien things going on as a, as a publisher i was very mindful and i think paul has been not to make it too weird so that when you're looking at these things you go oh yes i kind of get that and uh, I think that's it's as I say, this is the whole post DD thing. It, there's a lot of familiarity, but there's enough to take it a different direction and quite a hopefully quite a satisfactory one. I suppose you mentioned the you mentioned the autark. So is is rule, as has been mentioned, there's various guilds. On top of it all, the overlord, if you like, is the autark, who is a massively powerful undead monstrosity. The agents of the Autark are basically vampires. They can go along and happily feed on the feed on the population. Between the agents and the Autark, the Autark sows discord between the guilds, prevents them reuniting, sets them at edge with each other. And one day, this thing just appeared from Nespos, and it, it wasn't because the um, the Asians was poking Nespos like an, you would do an ant's nest. Uh, no, no, no. Um, and one day, it just turned up. Turned up in the Imperial Palace, killed the Emperor, took over, and has been sat in the Imperial phone. And and as well as they saw the, the occasional foys of his vampiric um, agents, really the the, the, the the noble families and the nobles and all the power brokers don't know what it wants. It doesn't speak to them, and they kind of... And that's given them a certain amount of licence to up the intrigues that were going on anyway, because there isn't this sort of... Um, that you haven't got an emperor telling them and pulling them up. The emperor is not involved in the entry, except every now and again it will randomly slay somebody. So that's, yeah, so that's what Paul was saying. That's probably one of the big, if you want to, to have a high level campaign working out what this undead thing is doing <laughs> sitting on the imperial phone, or perhaps topple it, or not as the case may be. That's the way you're going to, going to go. Yeah, I think it's one action was, I think, outlawing the sort of religion of the goddess of light because you know undead light don't like that much gotcha so i'm, I'm trying to work out um I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask about your target market but you're gonna say everybody because they should all play this excellent game that you're producing but you kind of got elements there where you've sort of referenced uh old D stuff uh there's things like uh you know the familiar strength decks corner stuff like that in the game there's armor classes mentioned and stuff like that yet you've also mentioned rune quest and like oh you know like a 
So that there's, there seems like a few different things going on. So I'm guessing what I'm trying to get to is like what what sort of what sort of game are you going for, or what what's the experience that will be most attractive to to what sort of player? Does that make sense? Have I been too vague? Yeah, it does. It does because <laughs> I'm the publisher and I'm thinking, mm, I've got to make this damn clear. I did Crypt some things, which is unapologetically a sort of original D. It was used Souls and Wizardry, which is a big original D&D clone as a basis using the OGL and that was unapologetically my take on the OSR from somebody reading the early White Dwarfs and I did that and was attached to it and I was following what was going on in the scene and Paul was doing pretty much the same and I think we both got to the stage where actually we're kind of a bit bored with this <laughs> and uh, and also so there's that sort of like if and I remember that whole phase I went through, as I said, back in the late 80s, where where things moved on from D&D. But you had that, that stage where you still wanted to be fantasy, you still wanted magic, and lots of things for a minute, for the hour. That's why I mentioned Runecrest for me when I played it. It was just a step away from D&D. We didn't have Galanth. I was using the Games Workshop. And other people did it by playing a lot of AD&D, quite heavily house-rolled in newer settings like Ravenloft, Planescape and the rest of it. And those settings were also introducing new rules. So there's that side of the audience, the, the older graying <laughs> side of it, who remember that. Um, and then also a couple of years ago, even before the recent sort of one D&D sort of murmurings, there's the people who have been playing D&D that are kind of like saying, we'd like D&D to do more. Than what we're currently doing we'd like a bit more about you know other than fighting uh, and the rest of it and i think the background system and the drive system and the the fact that from word go when you create your character you're allowed to you're encouraged to bring those things and create a customizable character um using using the same character templates but picking special abilities that allow you to bring that out achieves that so, yeah, it is a bit of a hodgepodge of niches that we're trying to appeal to here, but that, that's basically it. Is there anything to add there, Paul? Well, no, I mean, that's your problem. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think it's someone who's interested in these D&D-ish games and OSR-ish type games, but also interested in doing just something just that little bit different just sort of exploring further people who want assessing where there's just that step away from D&D tropes but not a complete sort of sprinting away by a mile the, the big obvious one is or shall I come, come across year after year uh, when I've gone to gaming conventions is the GM who's got a home group who, who play D&D and that's all they'll play uh, and he wants to play something or she wants to play something different and they come to all these game conventions and they, they you know, they run wild. Oh, Cthulhu. Oh, Savage Worlds. Yay. I would say to them, I put this under their nose after, after I've mailed Mitch expertly GM'd it and say, take this to your home group. It should be all familiar, but it's a, a broader canvas, more different experiences to play with. Can you use one of your dread portals to bring people's home campaigns into the setting? 
Yes, absolutely. You could do that very easily. Mm. Uh, this is something we're, we're going to have as a high, high end, probably stretch goal right at the end is a some form of a, 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 a system of resource document. And I was thinking of doing a full, much fuller game based on that, where you it's a lot more similar, um, sort of familiar D&D tropes mm. like how, um, in that and how I would do that. And I think, I thought, well, obviously beyond Dread Portals, the, you've got the system and then you've got the, um, the setting. That's the selling point. So uh, Portals and Dragons, as I'm calling the SRD version, uh, what, what would be the, the, the pitch for that? Mm. And the pitch would be bring your own your own campaign. And, and you know, when you get fed up that, your characters just hop to another setting. Or or perhaps it's a bit like Quantum Leap, where you, <laughs> you, you one week it's Dark Sun, next week it's Spelljammer. And, mm. uh, and, and yet you have a coherent framework to do that in the parlance of uh, old D&D and those settings from the 90s planescape was traditionally seen as something that was quite high level you start off in the prime material playing kicking in goblins and eventually you're on spell jammers and the rest of it kicking in liches um so what's you start your game are you a more cocky and superhero of the multiverse or are you a warhammer scrub with a dog and a stick Something in between, perhaps. Where, 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 where do we start on the power level? Paul's got a very strong opinion on this, so I'll let him... Yeah, so one. it does come somewhere in between, but actually by default, characters starting in D&D terms, not at first level, but at third level. Mm. So the reason I'm thinking is you've got powerful patrons, patrons. The characters aren't necessarily struggling. They're competent enough. They're going to send them out to do dangerous things. They're not so incompetent. They're going to go... Well, they're first level scrubs, they're disposable. Mm. Actually, they probably are disposable for some patrons. That's part of the fun of it. But, but they want a chance to actually come back from the stuff. Yes. <laughs> to basically be able to survive the dangers and also have that feeling of, you know, a reputation of competence. Yeah, Paul's initial pitch that he to, to avoid the whole dungeon crawling thing um, was to start everybody at third level. Yeah, the the first and second rules levels experience level they're in the rules for completeness um, because non-player characters can be first and second level. But yeah, it's straight from the word go. Your third level, you're avoiding that low level <laughs> stuff. And I was like, yes, I'm a big fan of that because back in the day we we played basic expert loads, and we just about after about five years got to fourth level, and I thought, oh, we're going to need to do the fun stuff now. Uh, and the players really wanted it because when we went to AD&D, I gave them a choice of you carry on the AD&D campaign or we, and we do that by getting after Kana or we play Cold Cthulhu. And they went, oh, no, 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 we, we want that. On, what's an after Kana? And I explained all the superpower classes like the Cavalier and, and the Barbarian and, oh, you can have, you can have, have characteristics over 18. And they were like, yes, sign us off. And so... When Paul said, yeah, let's start them off at third level. Let's go for it. See, back in the misty days of 1980, I bought one of my very first purchases for my D&D campaign was Queen of the Demon Web Pits. Oh, which yes. Which was the module that capped off all of the drow stuff, the giant stuff, etc. And uh, <laughs> I had that in the village of Homlet. So it's fair to say that I had to do a fair bit of house ruling to get from one to the other. Um and the Queen of the Demon Web Pits 
for those who are too young to remember, was uh, in Loth, the, the Demon Queen herself, the Demon Queen of Spiders, who's on her home plane of the Abyss, the 666 level of, of demon kind. And, um, and one of the interesting bits which ties into what we're talking about tonight is in that maze-like labyrinth, uh, there were portals to other worlds. I think there's about eight of them. There was a frozen world and a water world and a, a world where it was perpetually dark and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I never got to play it because you had to be 10th level. And it was for parties of like, you know, eight to 10 players <laughs> of 10th to 14th level. So, you know, the, <laughs> and much like Newt's experience, I don't think I ever got past fifth realistically um so i never got to play that and that's why it's always been it's always uh been something i've wanted to do more of a planar action and hopping about because my favorite fiction was moorcock and that kind of thing and the idea of dipping in and out of things and never getting bored having that kind of mm. jigsaw like approach to a campaign where each individual piece is a really colorful thing and it all slots together quite nicely but you can just move on like an episode of the 18. <laughs> So can I do that, please, Paul? Yes, you can. you can. You can, Ben. You can. Yay! Sold. So you, you should. <laughs> what can I say? Not only can you, but you should do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you don't just have my permission. It's an imperative. <laughs> I like the way that it's an imperative. It's not one of those rules like, now you own this book, you can do with it what you like. Oh, cheers. But no, now you own this <laughs> no, book, no, you no, have no, to no. do If you this. own this book, you have to do this. You have to. I'll give you the book back. <laughs> you have to jump from world to world. But I mean, in all seriousness, you've got this setting and this system that's designed for hopping from world to world. That's what it's for. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of Planescape players never left Sigil, though, did they? Yeah. No, but that's boring. Who wants to do that? You want to go out exploring. And besides, and besides, this is horrible. You'd want to leave. <laughs> How easy is it then to create new worlds, I guess? Because some people are going to like burn through your exciting setting in no time at all and, and want to think of exciting new things or, or bring other ones in, as uh, Ben has mentioned. So have you got any guidance in there for kind of like creating your own thing? Or is it just so simple that you don't really need to go into too much detail about it? It's not too much specific guidance there i mean one thing i'll say that's there this horrible cavern world erebus is where the people from this will go sometimes to explore and discover portals to new worlds so there's hints of some very strange things going on there that is where you could link other things in gotcha and certainly in a home campaign i did have it invaded if you like by the issians because they go in very much like the 19th century British Empire. First there's trade, and do then there's dominance of trade. Then there's hints of, then there's divide and conquer. So, you know, you mentioning the Warring Kingdom setting, this is very much exploiting that and levering itself into this. I, I just saw it very, when I was reading for it, I thought, yeah, very much, I like to create my own stuff. So I did think, oh, what if it is a case of, uh, you know, I, want to, I, have a, I have a mad flash of an idea, how easy could I spin off another world? And I think it's hinted somewhere in the background and then the introductory test quite easily that there's the six worlds, I think, but there's, there's, there's also been little bits to explain. And you could quite easily turn up at your patron's house and then go, um, just come into the drawing room. I want to, just want to show you something. And he opens the door and, oh, it's a dread portal. And, and suddenly you're in a lush forest and said, right, off you go, chaps. Go and explore this for me. 
it could be that that simple. And then you'd have to have all the fallout that this isn't a license portal or and what do other noble families so it does suddenly it does struck me that the very nature of the thing is dead simple and paul has got it's got a very simple framework the way that the worlds are described and and laid out so if you're you know again think this is perhaps thinking a bit ahead of you know correct having a book of minor worlds or whatever i just think yeah it'd be very simple just to lay this out and follow the templates that Paul's already established here, which I'm a big fan of because um, I'm a big fan of um, Galantha from its third edition where there was a very strict um, template in the box sets that they followed before they just said, oh, we just want the big um, cultural packs, track set up where you just waffle on. But no. You have to stop promoting Ringquest. That's not what you're here for. No, sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> It's in my blood, I can't help it. <laughs> so is, is there anything like setting rules then? Like if you go to a particular place, is there like things that will apply only in that world or that kind of stuff? Or is that left up to GMs to kind of figure out for themselves? That, that's left up to GMs. I, I specifically didn't want to do that. I think that's sort of a level of tracking up, tracking things I didn't really want to do. Yeah, it's it's not... This is something like, we talked a lot about the patron patrons and... It's very much, here it is, here's the route, here's the path, here's how they behave and act. But there's no hard rules for how patrons work. I got to the stage where I heard to Paul, come on, I nearly said to him, can you make some hard rules? And I thought, no, it's not the type of game that this is. And as as Gaz says, you know, going back to RuneQuest, (laughs) it is very, everything has a hard rule in that. It's not enough to say it's chaos in RuneQuest is wibbly badness and you know explain some have some monster example monsters. No, we have to have a big D percentile temple where you roll D four chaos features for each chaos monster. Um, I didn't, you know, Paul doesn't do that and he's he kind of he kind of leads you up the garden path and then whether you take it further is up to you. I suppose is the best way. Is that the correct to that? Yeah, no, you can just like we can say what you like, really. Do we need to introduce safety tales on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> the first time the publisher and author have fallen out live on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, listeners. Hey, so um, this thing's going to be coming to Kickstarter, is that right? Uh, probably about a week from the time of recording, I'm going to say. It might even be out by now. Yeah. Oh, we're so, so, yeah, off to Kickstarter again. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an exciting and nervous moment for anyone who's done this. Yeah, yeah. Even for people who are relatively speaking old hands at launching things by Kickstarter, it's still, you know, it's a funny time. Uh, not funny, haha. It's funny, strange. <laughs> no, it's, it's also it's a case of, okay, let's get ready. Yeah, which is what I'm doing at the moment. So, yeah, you said it was, it's launching on the 2nd of April. Yeah. You've avoided April Fool's there, so that's quite good. Yeah, just to show that we're not fooling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so April the 2nd, it, it launches. Uh, at the end of the campaign, after it's funded, you'll get, a, uh, anybody backs it, you'll get a complete first first draft. And it's currently about 250-odd pages in 6 by 9 inch format. So that's little small book, about the, about the size of this. Good visual for listeners. Yep, flawless placement. <laughs> Reboot the future. Nice little cyberpunk game I've just got. And 
yeah so that's that's another selling point that it's not big it's going to be this size so it's not going to be big book D D. it's not going to be a big thing taking up sale space it's going to be a nice put it you can put it in your bag and take it on holiday so it's transportable and travel and it'll be nice on a tablet as well straight out of the box so so yes we are gearing oh i'm going up for what you call it the kickstarter paul's not even logged on to it yet <laughs> i made him a collaborator and he's not logged on bloody he's not accepted my invitation if i bet if bet you if i invited you around my house for, for, for beer and skittles you wouldn't turn up i'd turn up for beer and skittles beer and skittles little little sweeties not 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 sort of all games. For uh, viewers at home, we can now see that there's a bright light in Paul's face as he's rushed to the internet to try and log in and accept the request quickly. I have, I have, I have. <laughs> Paul's quite busy. I'm, I'm well aware. I'm of just, that. I'm just thinking about beer and skittles, to be honest. Oh, f- <laughs> so I'd like to advertise a new service for game designers. If you're having trouble collaborating, just come on our podcast and we'll uh, we'll work you through those know. blockers. You know, yeah. <laughs> Get the Kanban board out. We'll, we'll sort you from. Oh, I've got Kanban. Yeah, I have a Kanban board. But yeah, so I'm gearing up for, for Kickstarter. I'll kick Paul off the arse and he'll be there too. I will. I will be there. I'll be present. I think that's the bit, that's the thing about this one. This one is I, I'm unlike stuff which I'm because I'm collaboration with Paul um, and we have been for it's good. Is it a good six years that it's been a while? It's been a while, and it's but and it's been like every, every spring it is like it's spring. For Beyond Red Portals is coming to Kickstarter. Mm. And there's always something pops up, but this time we're doing it, and it's that stage where getting the getting the final thing, what what we're offering, up and at it in a form where I can, for the sake of my sanity, just launch it and see whether it, see whether it, it funds, you know, within a couple of weeks or whether it, it funds within ten minutes. You can go to my website, um, d11games.com, um, and there's a preview version. It isn't the latest version. It was before Paul went through the whole thing and stripped out the OGL, and but it's pretty much there. So there's a whole there's a preview version with an adventure. You can download it as a quick start play with your friends and have a look at, at what it is by before you try or at least kick at least back the Kickstarter. But uh, yeah, so I'm still that strange. My head, so I'm going beginning to drift off a bit because. I'm still nailing down. That's the, the hardest thing I think about Kickstarter is that whole, what are we actually offering and what are we prepared to offer stretch goals? Mm. Uh, not getting carried away with that one, which I have done in the past. Who hasn't? I'm still writing <laughs> them. Yeah. Who among yeah, us can't say that? I'm trying to think. So I think my last sort of appearance on the podcast was talking about launching Liminal. Mm. And I'm still fulfilling the stretch goals for that. Bonkers, isn't it? Yes, which is mad. Hmm. But you've got to be pleased with the success of Luminal, surely, because it's been, certainly in the UK scene, it's been going back and gangbusters. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased. It's really exploded. And if I never you know, get anything else at that level of success, I can still die happy. Spin-off games as well that other people wrote. <laughs> yes. So he says, hold you up, re- reboot the future, which is Cyberpunk Liminal. Yes. I'm going to explain this again. This is an audio-only podcast. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I'm just enjoying just holding things up. And well, if it keeps you happy, that's that's all right. It came in today in six big boxes. It's got ribbons. Should have called it criminal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I keep I keep looking over my shelves to sort of that, and I can see see a copy of Exalted Third Edition. I want to do my party trick of lifting it with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> now, Newt, 
question for you as a publisher you've uh, you mentioned ogl and paul having to strip it out there's been yeah. some shenanigans with ogl and all things behind the scenes oh. as a publisher did you <laughs> were you staring into the abyss as a publisher or are you thinking no. that ah, whatever shrug won't affect us we we one thing I, because i'm very conscious of what i am i have no illusions i used to call myself a, a micro press because that's what one-man bands with a couple of collaborators mainly putting out pdfs but so I'm, I'm quite happy to off my status and call myself a small press um and uh, so I, and we've done indie games where we, we paul mentioned hundreds of like alexandra he chose to use the fate license which is creative commons um i published um word, a get version of wordplay which is my by our friends um graham spearing that was also he released that under the creative commons so we use that with zero problems whatsoever the authors are happy that you use that there's you just put in their boilerplate legal text and that's it i use the ogl and for open quest the whole point that was half the point calling it open quest that initially was released completely under the ogl um and every cuff every couple of years i think it was three or five years i'd have problems with it so when we had two sides of it we had the the dnd ish stuff under the ogl and then the online dnd stuff and it was just such a no-brainer to switch to creative commons straight away and i talked to paul about where we where we, where we started with on joe portals and he just said i can just go straight straight take out all the stuff for the similar the oga so the stats for instance uh, strength is now prowess there's a couple of other things that have been changed we don't have armor class we have defense so he he got he had because paul's an academic he's got some access to some plagiarism software so he you run it paul ran it against dnd srd and he just stripped out anything that showed up red on this software what for me was interesting and i did i, I did the same with open quest and it turns out open the big the big one um for for the, the we just like very on ev i think everybody involved had a big brainstorm and some people kind of obviously floundered and were a bit ah end of the world particularly those people invested in dnd and where that's going but if you're not invested in dnd it was just like right let's find alternative sort of ways of doing it what we're doing currently and getting rid of the <laughs> the the worry of being sued by of the co or, or anybody else for that matter out of the way and for me it was a yeah let's get rid of it this is not it's been obvious it's not the best of arrangements for years and very conscious of the fact that one of the best sorts of uh, the best selling and, and really quite stuff that is sort is sort of D D, but isn't you can't get it legally is um sign nominees kevin crawford's uh, world without number mm -hmm. and um and and what's what's the what's the science fiction one that he's debuted oh, sorry it's just like gone out of my head i was gonna make a big point it's gone out of my head <laughs> stars without number <laughs> that's it yeah yeah and and he said you people say oh come, come why haven't you got an ogl and he says i don't need one you can use the rules but you can't use my words uh, or words to that effect and that yeah, he, he he absolutely rakes it in on his Kickstarters and like, never has zero legal hassles. I mean, I think one thing it did stripping everything out and changing the descriptions for a lot of things is it made it 
a stronger product. So any of the sort of lingering D&D-ish monster, two D&D monsters, they were subtly tweaked and they became so much cooler and more flavoursome. And same goes for descriptions of magic spells. Again, they got tweaked and renamed and everything. And I think it's cooler now. Apparently you get into trouble legally. This is from um, Matt Finch, the author of Swords and Wizarding, and he wrote the first um, retro clone, which is Oswick, old school reference index or something, and then Swords of Wizardry. So he's and he's a lawyer as well. Uh, not, I don't think he's a practicing lawyer, but he knew, knows his onions there. And he says apparently you get in in trouble legally if you list D and D spells in a list because that's a presentation of the rules. So it's so. You, that's why you change the names, not because you, you can copyright the name names of spells. It's it's this this presentation. But I I nearly said when Paul sent me the draft of his tweet version, I nearly said, "Oh no 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 no!" As probably my publisher head on, let's keep the names of the stats as, as the abilities as well strength, constitution for, for for this familiarity angle. But then I thought, no, after a while, it's still there. It's still obvious that prowess is strength recast but it makes it cuts that sort of i thought it cuts that that assumption that things in this game works the same way as your whatever version of D you play yeah it gives you a, yeah it's similar but let's put the effort into learning the new rules so i let it stand but it, it was an interesting couple of days during during this whole brain meltdown <laughs> thinking oh my god Mitch, you've alluded to having done other things since you were last on, and we've not really touched on any of them. Have you got any highlights from the past couple of years of uh, things you've been churning out for us? So the big thing that's come out over the last couple of years that's self-published here is Out of the Ashes, which is a system that's, I suppose, evolved from the liminal system to handle high fantasy. This is community-based post-apocalyptic fantasy. So if listeners like Liminal and like that really short pitch for that, I'd, checking that out would make me very, very happy. It's beautiful stuff. It's got art throughout done by uh, John Hodgson of Handiwork Games. Another good friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's not rubbish, is he? No, he's not at all. That's, I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to sh- swear? Yeah, well, we, me and me and John, we we quite often have a talk, talk and and we have an ongoing one about um, we've got acquaintances, let's put it this way, and, and, and colleagues who in the game publishing circles who like to go on about what they're doing and and overcook it a little bit, and we kind of go, we kind of go, we're a bit more low key and just get on with it, and John sometimes. And the past has sort of doubted about, and I just said, "Look, John, what you do is not shit." <laughs> and he kind of goes, "Oh yeah," which puts you in the top one percent straight away. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been fortunate. I know. I know John from. He used to work in travelling man in Leeds, and I've known John from that. And then, I think just when I was doing the first edition of Monkey back in the early, yeah, early two thousand. A friend of his who worked in the Manchester shop um, said, John does commissions. He'll do your cover for 90 quid. And he did. And I said, can I have all four, four characters? And he said, not for 90 quid, you won't. <laughs> I think that was the start. Of my, you know, I was, oh, that's interesting. 
the whole sort of like I've learned a lot from him about how to professionally do your art and the rest of it, which as well as being a publisher I, uh, intrigues me because my grandfather was a professional artist. He was a a senior senior art um, lecturer at Manchester Art School, School in Sculpture. Um, so and I know how he kind of made a living out of doing art. And so I was kind of interested in what John's thoughts on that were. And he's done all, all the covers of all my Open Quest stuff. Just about 10 odd things. Presumably not for 90 quid. No. no. <laughs> Cost him at least 100. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're getting into your artwork again, aren't you, Ben? So maybe there's an opportunity mm. here I can link you up with two of the the writer and publisher of many great games in the UK. You can become their new artist, maybe. Well, I know I can undercut anyone at 90 quid. I was going to, could you use 90 quid? <laughs> I'll do it for 89, how's that? <laughs> but I can't guarantee it's not shit. Ben, ben when you send me your, your, your sort of submission email, just make sure you, you know who, read my about page on my website and, and, and that you address it to me and, mm. and, and give give me some uh, some idea of how your style will fit in for me. <laughs> so so i'm just thinking oh i've had i've had a couple this this month because um we've had heightened interest like a lot of mm-hmm. companies of games other than D. and taking it back to dread portals this is why like, it's now the time to do it mm. as well as getting the damn thing out there is there is a big interest in in I think it's like the late 80s where we all sort of old timers discovered there were other games other than D&D and kind of went for it. And I think that because of the, the going back to the OGL bonfire or fiasco, there's a lot of people who just play D&D have kind of been sensing this for the last couple of years that there's, I'd like to do other things. And now because D&D's future is a creative freeform type thing, as in their eyes has evaporated and they will never trust rivers and coasts again no matter what they say those people are now branching out i had a very good sale about a month of sales back in january so did chaosium papasia and pathfinder <laughs> but i had a couple of artists approach me saying so here's my here's my um they go hi here's here's my link to my portfolio i'd like to work for you and you have to sort of like bite your tongue and not send them an email page saying, do you know what I do? Do you know even know my name? Sorry, gone off a bit of a tangent there. Yeah, Ben, come and write, come and, come and art for us. <laughs> I'll art for anyone, mate. Because <laughs> obviously I've just got to back into art at the same time as AI is going to destroy any nascent ability that I might have. <laughs> so at least four of us on this call are all going to be put out of work by our AI overlords within days. So, yeah. Too late to the party as usual. That's kind of beyond my tombstone. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the AI podcast. It'll <laughs> <laughs> just be chat GPT. And well, GPT. we operate on a predictive text kind of model, really. We sort of listen to what people say and then answer it in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my master's in data science is actually going to be useful soon. <laughs> I'm going to be the overlord of the overlords. It's not artificial intelligence anyway. We've had to stop calling it intelligence. It's artificial cleverness or IQ now. I think this is fair. It's doing one trick very well, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I think I think there's still plenty of scope for us creative types. I think role playing is that, that hobby where it just requires that human interaction, doesn't it? And Absolutely. Thoughts sparking off other ones and like just ingenuity. It's the sort of thing that. AI can't replicate because it has to look at a body of work and then give you more of the same. 
Whereas I think the the human interaction is the bit that makes our hobby so interesting, and all the all those like interesting stories that come out of a role playing session when you have one is just from someone doing something completely left field, and and you know we're just like and everybody goes with it and takes it in a completely different direction. That's the sort of stuff you remember, isn't it? Absolutely, and that sort of I mean, even in terms of just writing or writing an art, you want that spark of originality hmm. and doing something unexpected, which I don't think AI does give us. Not yet. Well, I've just checked the clock, and uh, if we start talking about AI, that could be another hour we spend before we know it. It's another show, isn't it? It is a whole new podcast, which we may <laughs> do in, a, in a, another time, but not right now. So, uh, yeah, it just remains. We said thanks very much for coming on, both Mitch and you. It's been great to hear about your new product. We'll put lots of uh, things in the show notes so people can go to your site and uh, jump on the Kickstarter and other things. Cheers for coming on, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been lovely thanks, to fellas. be here again. Hat trick. Yeah. Well done, you. I'll send you a little medal or something. And uh, thanks also to our patrons and listeners and anyone who likes or shares the podcast. You are all the people that keep us going on doing this thing that we do. So until next time, dear listeners, bye for now. Bye.